Well, right in the middle of Easter season, uh, you know, we live in a city where we celebrate festivals, festivals from numerous religious backgrounds and orientations. And so as we make our way toward next weekend, which would be known as Palm Sunday, the anointing of Jesus Christ, our King, on Tuesday, many people all over this great and wonderful city will go to their graves of their ancestors and their family members and sweep them to remember uh, their families, uh, to, in, in some cases, worship their ancestors, and in many cases, in some way, shape, or form, to cry out, expressing a loneliness of those they've lost, expressing a missing of what's no longer here. And, and I do not know the, the long, the centuries, millennia-long history of what goes into grave sweeping. But at its very root, it seems clear to me that there's a longing to get back something that we can no longer have. You see, for those that aren't Jesus Christ, we're not invited to continue on in an active relationship with them in the same way. If they have passed away, our relationship with them has changed, has it not? If we know that that person that has passed away knew Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we look forward to a reunion and we can't wait. But we do not worship the dead. It's just not the way it's, it's to be. And it, it, by the way, it is in no way wrong to remember the dead. Uh, we miss those. I miss my father-in-law. Uh, I miss many others, my grandmother, and those are recent losses to my family. You have those, and that is in no way wrong. But it is easy for us to worship that which we cannot have and miss who is right in front of us, who invited us into a relationship with him. And we as the church have a chance to show the world there's a better way than, than hoping for something we can't have. There's a way to know life to the fullest, to live it out in powerful and tangible ways. And so when we've started this series, we've been asking the questions of why Easter? What's the big deal? And I've been sneaking in pretty deep Christian theology and calling it different words and different questions. So week one, are things really that bad? If you want to go off and sound smart to other people, we began to examine the concept of the depravity of man, that man on our own is not good. We will choose selfishness. We will choose discontent because we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie that says this world is all about us. And that tends not to work out very well for us because we end up feeling lonely we end up placing our affections on all sorts of other things that leave us unfulfilled, unsatisfied, and discontent. Because we've all sinned. We've all chosen ourselves over the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. Our depravity, our sinfulness, apart from Jesus, wins the battle and ultimately causes death that leads to those apart from Jesus in eternity apart from Jesus. 
And so we looked at that in week two. We looked at the question of what kind of leader can we trust when all around us we're disappointed in how politics are going or we've been disappointed with our bosses, with our families, with this, that, and the other. And why Easter? Because we need to see that in Jesus Christ, there's a leader we can trust. There's a leader that shows us there's a right way to live that's beyond reproach. What do I mean by beyond reproach? I mean, we can criticize Jesus for all sorts of things, but we cannot criticize him for how he lived because he lived perfectly. He lived as one that constantly put the needs of others ahead of his own all the way to the cross. He lived as one that lived life by example and said, follow my example, and he did it by living as a servant where he would continually serve others. He would continue to invite the most sinful people the world thought they could find, and he would say things like, he who has not sinned, throw the first stone to the woman caught in adultery. He would call Zacchaeus uh, down from the tree, and I like Zacchaeus because he was short, and and he calls him down and he not only says, let's have a conversation, but he goes home and he shares a meal with them. And he says, you belong to me now. You're with me. And time and again, Jesus demonstrated that he was the leader that could be trusted, that could be relied upon, and that is worthy to be followed. You look at his statements just in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are, and you begin to look at those and you begin to compare those with what we know of how Jesus lived his life and he lived his life living out the Beatitudes. And why is that so important? Because if we look at the models of leaders around us today, we can often be disappointed or wonder, I don't want to follow that example. Or there's got to be better than that. Or when we're disappointed when yet another leader fails and we're left wondering, where does my allegiance lie? Well, our citizenship is not on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. And therefore, our king is Jesus Christ. And he says, follow me. I will lead you to eternal life and I will lead you to great life while you're on the earth. Maybe it's not what you had planned and that's awesome because my plans are way bigger than your plans, because I am the Word, and I knew you before you were even created. It was I, if Jesus is speaking, that could hold up the world, because he's fully God. And then we get to this week, and we think about the idea that we, a a humanity in search of hope, in search of meaning, If we look at our hearts, we long to be known and loved. We long for someone to understand us. You've heard me say it before and I'll say it again. Many of you have already lived through the teenage years. Therefore, at one point or another, you looked at your mother or father and said, you just don't understand. And if you grew up in my era of childhood, it was even created into a song by DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince that told us in wonderfully loquacious words that parents just don't understand. And we get this idea in mind that nobody gets me, nobody understands what I'm going through, and my validation has to come from them understanding how I feel. 
And interestingly, we read in verse 14 of John 1, 1, the verse that changed the world. Because the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And because of that, we present tense have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And before I step forward beyond the rest of this message, I want us to pause here and understand the depth of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 that King read. And I need you to remember back to my first sermon series as your acting lead pastor five years ago, and we worked our way through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I can't say that it was my best sermon series. I barely remember it myself, and therefore I doubt you remember it at all. But in that series, we looked at this author, John, same guy that's writing this this gospel truth. And in everywhere you find John, you find a couple of themes. One, this week's theme is, is centered on the idea of the incarnation, God becoming man and making his dwelling among us. And John wants everybody to understand that Jesus is the answer. He is the answer to the question of life. He is the answer to what love can look like. He is the answer to where our hope lies. And so John, when he writes letters to the early Jewish church as they're trying to learn how to follow Jesus, his themes throughout each of those three letters are always centered on what I call the three L's, light, life, and love. And that's the same themes that you find in the very gospel of John. John is consistently pointing people back to the light that we have through Jesus Christ because he is our light. We talked about that last week. The centrality of Jesus brings light to a dark world. Jesus Christ in everything shows that light can overcome the darkness. It's never so bad that God cannot fix it. And in the same way, we understand that the life we have is through Jesus Christ because he said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full, that your life, not just forever, we don't just look forward to heaven, we look forward to the restoration of all things back to the way God intended them. And while we're here, we get to present, as Cassie Karstens, the founder of The World Needs a Father, we get to bring a little bit of heaven with us whenever we walk around showing the world the life that we have in Jesus Christ, showing the world that we, the love that we have been given, the love that saw God look down at earth with compassion and didn't just say, man, that's one messed up people. They should figure it out and fix themselves. Again, let's pause and think about our coworkers, our friends, and our family. And how's our empathy? How do we do? We know our friends, our coworkers, and our family members might be struggling, and we look at them and we might often say, look at the mess they got themselves into. They deserve it. You ever say that? Maybe not out loud, but you do it in here. You do it quietly. They deserve that. How dare they not validate me and what I feel, but they deserve what's coming to them. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Jesus said none of those things. Jesus, fully God, as we talked about last week, looked down at earth and stepped 
down to earth and got right in the middle of the mess and said, I'm going to show you a better way. And I'm not only going to show you a better way, but I'm going to show you that there is one God and that one God understands you and understands what you're facing and what you're going through and understands what it means to live as a human because he has done that. He was born. He went through puberty. He had hormones. He was a teenager. And all of these things, he did not sin. But he walked the earth as an example to us and as a reminder that we are not alone. We are loved and valued by God, so much so that he would give us his son to walk the earth with us and to show us there's a better way to live. So I want to look at three things for just a couple of minutes that remind us of why the humanity of God matters. God becoming man, God becoming human and walking this earth. Not too far from here. You just, you you fly toward the Middle East, you end up in that area and, and you can walk the same footsteps as Jesus did. So we need to consider that the humanity of Jesus, as we see in John 1, 1, shows the relational nature of the Trinity. Now, that's a big statement. I tried to figure out a way to make it memorable and simple, and there's no easy way to say that God cares deeply about relationships. He is a relational God. We say that all the way, we see that all the way from the account of creation that we will make God in our own image. I believe the scholars that say that that's a Trinitarian statement. God the Father communicating with God the Son who's communicating with God the Spirit and together they are at work in creation because in John 1, 1, we see that the humanity of Jesus is at work. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. From the very beginning, Jesus is God. Now, if you didn't grow up in Sunday school, John 1.1 is an incredibly confusing and seemingly unnecessary metaphor-driven passage of Scripture. Okay? It's confusing. Because who is the Word, what is the Word, and why is it there? Well, John was writing to a largely Jewish audience, and he knew that. And a largely Jewish audience would take great pride in knowing the law, which they might even call the law, the books of the Torah, the books of the Old Testament, whatever words we want to use. They would take great joy in that. And John is introducing people to a relational God that is more than a series of rules. And so he's beginning slowly and intentionally to stretch their understanding of God. And he starts it with, In the beginning was the Word, and he intentionally uses the Word as a name for Jesus Christ. Because he's going to show, and Jesus Christ himself taught, that he is the fulfillment of the very law. He is the culmination of the entire Old Testament that points to him. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't earn it through the law. You earn it through me. So when John refers to Jesus, he's saying, in the beginning was the word, the logos, the Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus is God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through Jesus, all things were made. And all of this gives us this picture of understanding that God is at work. And while this side of eternity, we're never going to quite understand how the Trinity works, we know that it's a fellowship. We know that God in three persons, blessed Trinity, as you've often sung, works together to bring humanity back to himself, to bring glory to God, and to show us, in, in, in Christianese terms, an apologetic, a way to live that is right, a way to live that has meaning. And it starts with understanding that God in his very being is relational. And because he's a relational God, he wanted not just to look down at humanity and say, man, they've screwed up. But from the very moment when that free will was exercised and Eve and Adam sinned, the plan was already in motion. And what's called in the Old Testament, the, the first act of evangelism, the first pointing to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, that God was already at work in how he would deliver humanity, how he would restore a broken relationship. God cares so deeply about humanity that no matter how many times we've continually betrayed and run away from him, he invites us back. The whole book of Hosea is that picture of God inviting people back to himself. He is a relational God and he invites us into relationship with him. Jesus dove down into the mess to show that God cares deeply about us, no matter where we find ourselves. His compassion and his justice, they fail not, as the song goes. But not only does the humanity of Jesus show us the relational nature of the Trinity, and I could go on and on about that, and we're not there with time, but we also need to understand that the humanity of Jesus also shows us the very glory of God. Look at verse uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. The God of this age, uh, the God of this age of self, of pride, uh, rooted in, in the ways of Satan instead of the ways of man. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, we are invited to experience the glory of God through Jesus Christ. It's, it's a very big concept for us, and it can be very confusing for us to understand. What, what, what do you mean, Mike, by the glory of God? Well, it is hard for me to imagine the cosmos. Can any of you think of the end of space? I can't. I can't even imagine our solar system and, I, uh, and whether all the planets, whether Pluto is a planet or not, I get very confused very easily. So it is very hard for my mind to grasp a God that is greater than all of that, that can hold all of that in his hands, that can hang each star and name them one by one and know also how many hairs are or are not on my head. 
that is hard for my mind to grasp. Yet the humanity of Jesus gives me a small picture of the greatness of God in human form. And the best way I can explain that is by showing you a picture. One of my favorite paintings of all time is by uh, the artist Raphael. Don't know much about him, uh, an Italian Renaissance artist. But in this, look at this screen over here. uh, And you can see there's this immaculate detail in this picture, in this painting by Raphael. And this picture is entitled The School of Athens. I had to learn about it in art history class when I was in university, and it became one of my favorites. Why? All sorts of reasons, but let me name a few. One, because no matter how many times I look at this painting, I see something new each time. There is great depth and there is great detail to it that I've often discovered. I have missed things that I'd seen before. The detail that we continue to look out at the glory beyond the the skies. The fact that people are engaged in conversation. People are engaged in relationship. Remember, the painting name is the School of Athens. And what were Athenians known for? They were known for standing around and reasoning and thinking well together. Interestingly, while I don't know that Raphael proclaimed to be a Christian artist at all, he's not so off the mark for what Christian fellowship is supposed to look like. Come, let us reason together. Deuteronomy 6, let us talk about the word, the law, the very person of Jesus Christ when we lie down and when we get up and when we have meals together. May he be ever on our lips. May his praise be always before us. And we do that together with Jesus Christ. This painting gives us this image of a group of people together in a magnificent setting that's bigger than they can understand. I have looked at this painting thousands of times and not once have I come away with the same image that I saw the time before it. How much more so is the very glory of God expressed in the person of Jesus Christ? The more we learn of him, the more we walk with him, the more we see his light at work in our lives the more we see his love giving us power to do things we never thought we could do on our own. The magnificence of the glory of God is that he is at work in and through and with us. How cool is that? Let me say that again. The magnificence of the glory of God for us is that he is at work in and through and with us. All that points back to himself. What do your lives point to? There are many times when my life does not point back to the glory of God. And I need to remember this painting that I never get to the end of the glorious nature of God, but I've been given a glimpse. And I want to turn my eyes upon Jesus, look full on his glory and grace, for the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The humanity of Jesus reminds us and demonstrates the very glory of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ, who is in the very image of God. But you know what? We too are made in the image of God. Therefore, we are image bearers. We 
carry the very glory of God with us as we follow Jesus Christ. The Bible is consistent. And so when we see these things, we know John knew what he was writing. And he was reminding the people of God that we carry God's glory with us and how we show the world who we are as Christians, as followers. So the humanity of God reminds us that God is a relational God. The humanity of God reminds us that God, His glory can be experienced at least a little bit here on earth and how we see and interact and relate with Jesus Christ. And finally, and this one, this one gets a little more personal for some of us, the humanity of Jesus shows us the mingling of grace and truth. And uh, while on your notes, you'll see that I put verse 16 there, I'd actually like you to look at John 1 verse 18. And it says this, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father and has made him known. Verse 17, right before that, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Remember, I talked to you about that. And the fulfillment of the law means that it's not just the truth of the law. It's not just the truth of the the words and, and the rules that we are given. We all like to camp out in the law for other people. But we want the grace for ourselves. Jesus Christ is the perfect illustration that grace and truth are married together for the glory of God. Why is this so important? Well, let me see if we can unpack it a little bit. Uh, And let me do it this way. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace. We like that part. But you could also say, out of his fullness, we have learned the truth. And if we think about our lives, we want to receive grace. We want to be forgiven. We want to be given great treasures at the expense of someone else other than ourselves. But we don't always like to look at the truth of our lives. We don't always look at, like to look at the motives behind what we're doing. And that can be painful. But as you read in just a couple of chapters later, Jesus Christ shows us In John chapter 4, the intersection of grace and truth has life-altering, relationship-changing impact on us. Because John chapter 4, I've been alluding to this each of our sermons in our series, Why Easter? John chapter 4, Jesus sits down with a Samaritan woman at a well. And he has a conversation. She was unclean, she was a Samaritan, and she was a woman. Three very good reasons a Jewish man would not talk to her. Which, for the record, also demonstrates God's tremendous love and value of women. Don't lose sight of that fact. But beyond that, how Jesus engages in this conversation teaches us much. Because not only does he ask her to tell him about her life, he already knows She's been married a number of times, and the man she's living with is not her husband. He knows that already. He already knows what you're trying to hide in in your hearts. 
He identifies the truth, but he does not throw the rock at her. He says, I've got living water that will give you new life. Grace and truth mingled together in the person of Jesus Christ that says there's a bigger life than you had ever imagined. I am the living water. Drink of me. Follow me. So what do we do with that? Well, it's pretty simple. We understand that we've been welcomed into fellowship with the Most High God. Through the person of Jesus Christ, the rest of the scriptures continually teach us that because of Jesus, we have access to God the Father who is in heaven. And it's a magnificent, wonderful thing, invited into this fellowship that allows us to know God and make Him known. And churches, for hundreds of years, have loved to claim this special word in Greek. And I don't know why we like the word so much. I think it's just a fun word to say. But you go around many churches, especially in America, and you'll see things throughout the church named koinonia. You ever heard that word before? Koinonia in English is translated fellowship, but unfortunately it's not enough because it means a lot more than just fellowship. Let me see if I can explain a little bit more of the idea of koinonia because, you know, this year, 2017, is a special year in the life of the church. 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the cross, not to the cross, to the door of the Wittenberg church. And when he did that, uh, it changed everything. Not just that event, but all of the events surrounding were leading us to this idea that the scriptures point us to the person of Jesus Christ. And found him by his deathbed, scrawled in German and Latin, was this declaration, we are beggars. That is true. D.T. Niles was prompted as he learned this about uh, Martin Luther to say evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where he can find a piece of bread. Not a sweet roll and a cup of coffee, but a bite of the staff of life, bread. The church is a fellowship of beggars, receiving and offering love, support, and hope. Can I read that again to make sure you get it? The church is a fellowship of beggars, receiving and offering love, support, and hope. I would surmise, let's change that to light, life, and love. Same meaning, but that's what the church is. Committed Christians acknowledge their dependence upon God and their interdependence on one another. Communion, relationship with God and with each other. I love to think of the cross as this wonderful picture that it points us vertically toward our relationship with God and horizontally toward our relationship with others. And it is there that we see Jesus Christ at the intersection of grace and truth. Those in living in the koinonia that we have been given through fellowship with God are always in the breadline, giving out where we can and receiving when we need it. The church is a fellowship of beggars giving away light, life, and love. Therefore, we've got to live in a different way. And so what's that mean? Well, we're invited into grace and truth. Many of you have wanted people to give you grace for actions you've committed against them. 
You want them to forgive you or say it's no big deal. But yet when they offend you, you're the very quick to let them know how they've hurt you and how bad they are. Sound about right? Is that typically how we do things? I'm no different. But we tend to operate in that duality. We want to be given grace. If we do something, if we have forgotten to fulfill a responsibility we'd promised, we want to be forgiven and given much grace. But if someone forgets to fulfill a responsibility toward us, we're going to chase them down and let them know how wrong they were. It happens. It's our normal sense. But what if there's a third way? What if there's a way to say that we will give away the same grace that we have been given and we will also acknowledge the truth and welcome the truth that holds one another accountable for who we are? That in the church, we're going to hold each other accountable. If we've messed up, we're going to help each other along the journey with grace and with truth because of the love that we have been given through Jesus Christ. Our lives have to model extravagant grace, free grace given away, and deep truth that pursues relationships that are deeper than the surface. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. Just read John 4 and think about that woman at the well and how deep into her life Jesus went. Grace and truth. We're also challenged to reflect on the glory of grace and truth and how we live. In other words, we understand that we were created to live in just this time, right now. But that doesn't mean we're called to live like the world. We're called to show the world there's a different and better way to live. There is light in walking with Jesus Christ. There is life in following the example he has set before us. There is love in entering into fellowship with him. These are lessons the world needs to see. And John would spend all of his energies pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ because the humanity of Jesus demonstrates light, life, and love. So the question today as we finish is, are we going to be the kind of people that walk as children of the light? Are we going to be the kind of people that walk with Jesus? Celebrating the glory of the incarnation, God becoming man and making his dwelling among us, pitching his tent with us. Are we going to push against the incarnation and say, no, I know a better way to live. I'm going to do it on my own. God loves us so much that he gave us the choice. He won't do it for us. But he says, the choice is yours. You can walk with me and I will show you a life that you never imagined. People like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Augustine of Hippo, Joyce and Henri Samatu, none of these people expected the lives God gave them, but each of them said yes, they would follow God and they would enjoy relationship with Jesus Christ. And as far as I know, not one of them is living with regret right now. The best way to live is to enjoy the glory of the incarnated one, to follow the example Jesus set before us as he walked the earth, and as he invited us to come with him. May we be a people with God, not against him. Lord, thank you. Thank you for anointing your author, John, 
to teach us such deep truths, so much more than I can even begin to comprehend. And Lord, in your glory and in your truth, I ask that we would embrace the invitation to walk with you, to follow you, and to invite others into grace and truth through Jesus Christ. We can't do it on our own. We can only do it through you. In your name we pray. Amen.